prominent pastor and Bible scholar was asked to speak about the Christian view of marriage at a philosophy class at a large secular university in Los Angeles. And this pastor knew it would be really difficult to explain a Christ-centered biblical ethic to college students who openly reject Jesus and the authority of the scriptures. So this is how he began his presentation. He said, Christ's standards of ethics cannot be ultimately accepted by anyone who doesn't trust him as Savior and Lord. He said, I do not expect most of you, he's speaking to these college students, I don't expect most of you to agree with what the scripture says because you don't believe that through these words your creator has spoken. Believing and embracing scriptural standards for anything presupposes you have a right relationship with God the God of the scriptures. He said, only when you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ can you really apprehend his good design and then desire in your heart to follow it. Okay, there was some awkward silence after he said this. And so one student in this class raised his hand and he said, well, then you'd better tell us about Jesus. And <laughs> this guy laughed and he said, okay, so he spent the next hour sharing the gospel with this class of philosophy students at this secular university. And after he did this, then he describes a biblical view of marriage as it fits into the grand picture of what God has revealed. And, and what he was doing in, in this description and how he, how he approached this is he was communicating to these students this simple message. It's only when we truly understand the grand story of redemption when we surrender to Jesus as Savior and acknowledge his authority as Lord, knowing that God created us, he designed us on purpose, that his ways are best, it is only in the reality of the gospel that we will rejoice at the great privilege of following how God wants us to live. And so this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible says about marriage and about family. And these are realities that are designed by God. They're given to us for our good, and they're living illustrations of the gospel. And, and if we have the eyes of faith, if we have a soft heart, if we surrender to God's authority, and then the Spirit's transforming work within us, we can apprehend God's good ways and rejoice that we get to follow him. Now, I want to say one more thing before we get started, because we need to set the stage here. Um, for many of us, our actual lived experiences with family and marriage have often been really painful. And maybe you've experienced abuse as a child or, or in your marriage, or maybe you've, you've had divorce in your family or had conflict in a, in a relationship, or, or maybe you just find that family life has been really hard. The reason we need to approach this topic from a biblical perspective, from a, a, a centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that there is real forgiveness and real power for redemption and restoration in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over and over again in the scriptures, friends, Jesus reaches out to touch those who are in broken families. He, 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 he forgives those who have hurt others. He offers redemption from the reality and the effects of sin in marriages and families. And so before we get started here, I just want to say take heart. 
Jesus loves you and he can do his redemptive work in your family. So with that, let's jump in. Let's talk about a biblical perspective on marriage. Um, Jonathan Edwards, who's an 18th century pastor and theologian, he once wrote this. He said, the creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart. And in that way, God might be glorified. You see, what we need to see right at the outset is that marriage is a living illustration of Christ and his bride, the church. The creation story, which we're going to look at in a moment, in Genesis, establishes the pattern. And then the, it, it prefigures the reality at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation that describes the new heaven and the new earth as a wedding feast. Where Christ is the groom and the new Jerusalem is the bride. In other words, it was God's purpose from eternity to design human marriage as a signpost to the reality of the union of Christ and the church through the gospel. So let's dive in and, and figure that out and understand that deeper. Let's look at the created order and how this uh, design and, and purpose was established in the book of Genesis. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, turn there with me. This is the first page of your Bible. We're going to just walk through Genesis 1 through 3 and kind of skim through it here and point out uh, some critical features of God's created design, his order. So as we go through here, I'm just, again, I'm going to, to, to glance at some different sections. So let's look at chapter one first. What we see here is that God created in complementary sets. He created light and dark. He created the waters above and the waters below. He created the land and the seas. He created the sun and moon, the birds and fish, animals and reptiles. And the culmination of it all was the complementary set of human beings that bear God's image, male and female. The pinnacle of that merism, that complementary set and the way he designed and ordered things. That's chapter one. Now chapter two zooms in on the creation of humanity and explains that Adam was given the world to steward and given the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for he would certainly die. That's verses 16 and 17. Then Eve was created as a helpmate for Adam, and they were united together in the first marriage. Verse 24. Now, this union of one man and one woman as one flesh is affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19 when he talks about divorce. Now, we all know the prevalence of divorce in our culture. And some of you have been affected by this. And friends, the reason why we experience such pain in that, why there are scars, why it feels like part of you is being amputated, it's because it is the tearing apart of one flesh. It's not merely a social contract. It's not a relationship of convenience. It's not something that gets you a status symbol, or it's not even a civil right. 
It's a mysterious union of two image bearers as one, and tearing it apart hurts. See, in our day, um, there are all kinds of ways that we tear apart marriage or break it down and We often elevate marriage too high as though it can satisfy your deepest desires. Often, frankly, making single people feel less than human. And I'd like to know what Jesus says about that. Fully human, he was never married. Sometimes our culture distorts marriage to be man and man or woman and woman, completely missing the point of the beautiful difference between the complementary nature of male and female. Or sometimes we, we, we distort it by, by normalizing the tearing apart of families through divorce or, or other things. Friends, I just want to say these are weighty issues. And the damage is real. It hurts. It's, and, and you've probably felt it and it affects us deeply because it's not the way things are supposed to be. And the reason why this passage then flows from chapter 2 into chapter 3, describing this beautiful union of two image bearers as one flesh. And then we see division and discord and sin entering in chapter 3. And the good order is distorted by sin. You see, Satan comes to tempt Eve, twisting the words of God. Adam is nowhere to be found, and without her helpmate, she makes the decision to disobey God. Adam abdicates his responsibility. He partakes of the fruit, and when God comes calling, he goes to Adam and holds him accountable, but he deflects and blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent, and everything's lost in the curse of sin. That's chapter three. Now, you need to hear this. The curse of sin distorts marriage relationships. In Genesis 3.16, this is the one verse I want to read, just to draw your attention to it. Because this sets the, the trajectory for the rest of the scriptures as we talk about this. This is the specific curse between their relationship of Adam and Eve. Down at the, 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 the last line of that verse, God says to Eve, Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You need to understand two key words in that sentence, desire and rule. The word desire in Hebrew means to seek control over. And so the curse of this wife is that she will desire to control her own destiny, to subvert her, her husband. And instead of it, it's the opposite of a trusting relationship. And then this word rule is that the man's curse will be that he will be heavy handed and authoritarian in order to promote himself, that he'll act in ways that are for his own protection and advantage. It's the opposite of self-giving love. See, this distortion of the relationship of man and woman cries out for redemption. And so let's fast forward to see how this can be redeemed in the gospel. All right, now that we've kind of set the biblical theology and started off with where things got messed up in Genesis, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. So go now all the way to your New Testament. There's obviously a lot that's happened between Genesis and Ephesians. But in light of what Christ has done as he has died and rose again and established his church, listen to these words that are a gospel corrective. From Ephesians chapter 5, picking up in verse 21. Love to have you follow along and see these words for yourself. 
So I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. This is the word of the Lord. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Do you see the quote there of Genesis 2, 24? This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay. Before we dive into the details here of what God has told us in his word. We need to understand the issues that were going on in the church in the city of Ephesus at this time. So let me tell you about the cultural context within which Paul wrote this letter. There was a cultural battle going on in the Greek Roman world and specifically in the city of Ephesus. See, this is the first century. And if you, if you study the culture of this time, the ancient Greeks practiced what was called ancestor worship. They viewed the role of the head of the household, the husband and father, like a god. Everyone else in the household existed to serve the patriarch of the family. In other words, the head of the family traditionally meant that a man exercised authority for his own benefit. That was culturally, that's what they did. And being a husband or father was a self-serving role. And power was wielded to protect his lineage and honor. But, at the, okay, that's Greek culture. At this time, as the Roman Empire is spreading and taking over, there was a movement that had started to rebel against this. There's evidence that in the first century, there was a, a wave of Roman women who began reacting against this dominant role of male headship by refusing to have children, wearing immodest clothing, and generally rebelling against all their family responsibilities. They were called the New Roman Women. That was what they were often called. And many scholars call this a kind of ancient, a kind of ancient feminism. Now, the reason why these dynamics are important, okay, is that in the broader culture of the first century, this is what was going on, and it was infiltrating the church in Ephesus because there was an increasing number of Christians who were coming from Greek and Roman backgrounds. So they were showing up at the church services. They were trusting in Christ, but they had to unlearn a lot of the Greek-Roman culture and the debate and the arguing and the wrestling for power in the family that was going on. And so they didn't apprehend yet the deeper truths of the one true creator God and his revealed design. 
for marriage. And so this is why Paul is writing these words. Knowing this background now, you can see how Paul's words about God's design for marriage are not merely idyllic or detached from reality. The church in Ephesus was experiencing the very same sinful distortions that we saw in the curse in Genesis 3 to desire and to rule. It was happening in Ephesus. So what Paul is doing, and this is what we must do in our cultural moment as well, is that he's speaking eternal truths about how marriage reflects Christ and the church into a cultural moment where husbands were abusing their role as head of the family and women were asserting their own radical autonomy and refusing to participate in family life. And this is strikingly parallel to our day. So I just want to show you now, as we dive into this text, how God's design for marriage and family point to a grander eternal reality that illustrates our redemption in the gospel. So let's go into the details here. Jump in with me to look at the instructions that Paul gives for both wives and husbands in verses 21 to, or 22 to 33. Okay, first he addresses wives. And this is the key word here. He says, submit yourselves. Which means, and I want to I define this carefully, it means voluntary yielding in love. It's not an active verb. Okay, some of you know I really like grammar, okay, when it comes to studying the things in the scriptures. It's not an active verb. It's, a, it's in the middle voice. It's reflexive. In other words, it's, it has this meaning of submitting yourself. It's a choice that you make. It's an exercise of your will. And it was a direct challenge to these Ephesian women who were asserting their own, I get to do what I want, and destroying the fabric of their families. And so let me be super clear about why it's important to define this and even talk about the grammar. The New Testament never commands husbands to subordinate their wives. Never. Instead, a husband is called to treat his wife as an equal image bearer for whom God has given him responsibility to love. In other words, biblical submission is not coercive. It, is, it does not destroy the will of a wife. It, it rather upholds and empowers her to choose an act of loving response. And so this is the question Paul asks these women, and, he, and I think through God's word, he's asking us as well, will you submit yourself? Will you yield in love? Showing the world a living illustration of how the church submits to Christ. This is what Paul is describing. And I want you to understand this, friends. The church's submission to Christ is not coercive. It's an act of love. It's a willing response. And the church's submission to Christ is not stifling. It's for our thriving that we follow Jesus. It's an, it, we trust that he's acting for our good. And so, friends, I just want to be so clear here. It is a countercultural thing to imagine that submission could be a loving act that leads to thriving. That does not make sense in our cultural day. In our, in our time. 
And frankly, it's a really vulnerable place to be. And it's the only, the only way that that's possible is when it's matched with trustworthy self-sacrifice. This is why Paul turns to the husbands now. And he spends a lot of time talking to them. For husbands, he says the command here is to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now listen, the word love is repeated six times in this paragraph. And let's be honest, it should be no surprise that husbands need to hear the same command six times in order for it to sink in. <laughs> am I right? Can I get an amen? Yeah. All right. Now, friends, how do we define love? Our culture defines love as a feeling. But this passage defines love as the action of self-sacrifice. And it is modeled after Jesus' love for the church. And it has two features that I want to tease out here, okay? First is that if it's modeled after Jesus' love, the love that we are to express, Jesus' love was self-giving. How did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross. By giving himself to suffer for her. By putting her needs, the church's needs, above his own by giving everything for his bride. See, Philippians 2 says this, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so husbands... Are you willing to give up your privilege, putting your wife's needs above your own? Sacrificing yourself for her. To model what it means every day to die to self. This is the challenge to the Ephesian men. Think about this. They're living in a culture that told them that they get the privilege of doing this ancestor worship thing where everybody serves you. And Paul here tells them they are not to use their position to their own advantage, but to see the deeper design of God that they are to reflect this radical self-giving love. And it brings us to the other feature, okay? So it's self-giving, but listen, friends, Jesus' love is also generous. He loves us when we don't deserve it. I want to be, just point out what's maybe distorted in our world with this. Our world's version of love is usually object-oriented or it achieves something. A person is loved because of physical attractiveness or personality or wit or prestige or some other positive characteristic. We often love someone because they give us some kind of self-worth or, or, or we think it achieves something in the eyes of others. But this is twisted and toxic. Because then we feel a pressure to have something to make us lovable. In other words, the world loves those whom it deems worthy of love. And when love is based on a feeling, or keeping the spark, or impressing others, or or whatever it is, as soon as, that is a, as soon as that transaction doesn't work for you anymore, people leave and they find some other version of self-fulfillment. 
But friends, when you love like Jesus loves, you don't calculate the merit. You don't do the math on does this transaction work for me. Real Christ-like love continues to give generously as long as there is need. And this is what Jesus did for you and for me. We don't deserve his love. We aren't worthy of his love. We can't merit his love. It is pure grace. And so, husbands, will you choose to love as an act of generous service? Putting the gospel on display by loving your wife without a transaction. Seeking her good as an act of grace. Here's what I want you to see, friends. Do you see how this passage in Ephesians 5 reverses the curse in Genesis 3? Let me, let me just spell it out and real clear. Rather than the desire to control a redeemed wife is open-handed and yields herself to her husband as an act of love and trust, showing us how the church trusts Christ. And then for the husbands, rather than ruling for our own advantage, a redeemed husband is self-giving and generous with his love, working daily for his wife's good and showing us how Christ gave himself for the church and how he promises to safely usher us into the new heavens and new earth. In these realities, we have to acknowledge how hard it is to live this out, don't we? We need grace for each other. We need to practice forgiveness we need to abide in Christ. We need to let the Spirit transform us. Friends, marriage is one of God's tools for sanctification. It's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to learn how to live with another person who's not like you. And the complementary nature of men and women, it will push us to grow in grace and understanding of God's love. Friends, maybe I'll put a metaphor to it. This is like a dance with compliment, with a lead and compliment. And it's, it's more intuitive than, than following a set of uh, parameters or a, a three or four easy steps in order to do this. It, it's something that, that flows, and, and when it's done well, it, it's not stifling, it, it causes thriving. It's a joy and a delight when it's done well. It's not forced. It's not even obvious to onlookers. It's like a beautiful dance. But as that dance goes on, we often step on each other's toes. <laughs> we often sometimes get off rhythm or sometimes forget the way that this whole thing's supposed to work. Friends, I'll just say, when I think of the married couples that I want to emulate, they aren't loud and in your face about Ephesians 5. They tend to quietly and faithfully live out this beautiful dance of lead and compliment. And they live it out without having to, to shout out about these, you know, these terms and arguing for which part I'm supposed to play. 
Friends, the only way to do this well, this yielding in love and this sacrificial care and devotion is if your identity is secure in Christ. If you're a recipient of God's grace, you can more easily give grace. This is why Paul, and I saved it for the end, opens this entire section in verse 21 with these words, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the word for fear. In light of the reality of God's glory and authority and his own love and grace for us, we can embody these realities. See, this is so important. This mutual service of self-giving generous love matched with voluntarily yielding in love is a living illustration of the gospel as it redeems and restores the curse of sin in marriage. And I'll just say, contrary to the culture of the Ephesians, which we were just learning about, and to our own day and age, this biblical vision is not traditionalism nor liberation. It is an entirely different design, and it's, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And this is the God-ordained and beautiful path toward making a home where children can grow to know and love Jesus because they see the gospel displayed in living reality in their own parents. I spent most of the time this morning talking about marriage because like, if you don't get that foundation to be able to teach the next generation about the gospel when you're living out an anti-gospel, it's extremely difficult. See, we don't have much time to talk about parenting or other aspects of family life, although I have some book recommendations in the back. So check those out or look at your sermon handout. I just want you to notice where Paul goes next. We read through verse 33. Look at what he addresses right after he talks about marriage in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these next words. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Friends, the best place for these commands for children to become a reality is where husband and wife are living out the gospel in their relationship first. So, I'll say what I said at the beginning. It's only when we truly understand the biblical story of redemption. When we surrender to Jesus fully as Savior, and when we trust in his authority as Lord, that he created us, that he knows the best way, it's only in the reality of the gospel that we will rejoice at the privilege of following how God wants us to live. Let's pray. Lord, use these very words, your words from these passages, to drill down and convict our hearts by your spirit. Lord, there, is so, there are so many um, difficult things around this topic, 
painful experiences, broken families we come from, things that we maybe regret doing or wish we would have, whatever. Lord, your mercy is so overflowing. Your forgiveness and your possibility for restoring is infinite. Lord, let us see this beautiful picture of what this dance looks like, what this relationship of Christ and the church looks like and how that's reflected in a living illustration in the home. Let that be something that we strive towards, Lord, by your grace and by your Spirit's transforming power. That you would show us what it looks like to be ambassadors of the gospel in our homes. That we would put on display a light into a dark world that struggles to know what marriage and family is all about. Do that through us, Lord, by your transforming power. In Jesus' name, amen.